Well, I wonder whether you can imagine for just a minute what it must have been like in Syria, in Aleppo, to hear the news of that ceasefire agreement um, just a little bit more than a week ago now. I wonder if you can picture the people of that city. Maybe we should imagine them huddled uh, around a radio somewhere, and they hear this news their hopes surge. Perhaps there could be an end to this seemingly endless war after all. Perhaps there can be an end to the daily routine of clearing up the rubble, the daily tragedy of new bleeding bodies rushed into the, the ramshackle hospital they're trying to run out of its ruins. Perhaps there could be an end to this fear each day that this day could be your very last day. Do you think there were those who hoped? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there will have been many who didn't, who have become so jaded, who couldn't find it in themselves to hope any longer. But perhaps there were some. And now already it seems those, those hopes have been dashed, haven't they? We're continuing our series in the ancient book of Isaiah. And the, the section we're looking at today Uh, what we heard read a little earlier in the service, that speaks to people in something of a similar situation, really. Uh, A terrible situation where where all hope has been lost, where where they've lost, where the, the, the city is ruined, where the land that they loved, they've been driven out of it, where their their rulers have been taken away from them, where their temple has been destroyed. And now today it seems like an urgent voice wakes them. Uh, In the middle of the night there is this news that there's an end to war. At last there is an end to this war. But as we think uh, about this passage together today, I want us not to consider just what it would have meant to them in their situation I want to show you what it means for us here today too. And before I can do that, I have to take a a minute to show you how it is we are like them. Even though it might not seem like it at first, even though they might seem impossibly distant to us, we're reading a book that's perhaps two and a half thousand years old. And yet, we are actually quite a lot like those ancient and distant people more than we might have imagined at first. When we take time to look around the the world that we live in, well, Syria is not the only dark spot by any means, is it? Sadly, it is just a drop in the bucket. And when we look, that's just when we look at things on a national scale. If you zoom in and look a little closer, If you think about not just the things you'll see on TV or the things you'll read about in the news, but maybe think about the lives of the people around you, the lives of the people you know of, then we see that this is just the the tip of the iceberg. If you're anything like me, you'll know people around you whose lives are dominated by hurt and pain, by circumstances that seem crushing. Perhaps even that is your story today. Where does all of this come from? 
What has left our world in such a bad shape? Uh, why, why is it broken? Because of people. Because of evil people. Because of people thinking only of themselves. People hungry for power. People determined to get their own way no matter what the consequences are for others. People who simply will not do the right thing. And doesn't it look for all the world like they're getting away with it? But Christianity tells us something which should give us a degree of comfort uh, as we live in the middle of this broken world. This has not gone unnoticed. It won't always be this way. This has not slipped past God. Not one tiny bit of the pain and trouble in our world has escaped God's notice. Nor has a detail of who is responsible. Uh, Not one selfish act, not one underhand move, not one, not the slyest and most cunning conspiracy. Easy sometimes for us to imagine God is more like us than he is. You can think of his inbox of bad things happening. I imagine what that must be like. We can imagine God overwhelmed by the scale of trouble in his world. 10,000 unread messages. 10 million unread messages. If that was me, I would be absolutely unable to stay on top of it, unable to take it all in. We misunderstand when we think God is like us in that way. You see, Hebrews 4.13 tells us that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and lay bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. One comfort Christianity has for us is this. People are going to have to give an account. They're not just going to get away with it. The ones who are killing the innocent in Syria, the ones who are driving hundreds of thousands from their homes into terrible danger, into the hands of other evil people, those who take advantage of the isolated, the innocent, the helpless. People are going to have to give an account. But it is really easy for us to just go pointing the finger everywhere else, finding people who are responsible for this mess of a world that we live in, wishing somebody could deal with them and take them away so the decent people like us, well, we could just get on with things. But the unpleasant truth, the reason that we are more like these ancient people we've been reading about than we might like to imagine is that we're part of this problem too. You are. I am. We are a part of the problem that makes this world what it is. I'm selfish. I, I, I don't care about others in the way I should care about others. I, I don't think nearly carefully enough how my actions are gonna impact other people. I'm too caught up in what suits me. 
you and me, we are a part of the problem that makes this world the mess it is. And we too are going to have to give an account. That is why we are like the people we read about. See, their world's a mess, right? Their, their nation's been defeated, exiled, nearly annihilated altogether. Everything they've loved and treasured has been taken from them. And why? Well, open your Bibles again back to where we are and take a look. Chapter 51, uh, verse 17. The chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the little ones. This is page uh, 740 if you're using one of the, the guest Bibles. Chapter 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Why are things so bad for this people that we've been reading about? That verse tells us it is because they have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. That's poetic language, isn't it? Poetic language, but it's not that hard to make sense of it, really. Picture a cup filled with a, a deadly poison that is going to burn its way out of your guts. And where's it come from? Well, that verse tells us. It has come from the hand of the Lord, from God himself. And why? Why is this cup in our hands? It tells us too. It is his Wrath, that's, I guess, an old-fashioned word, his anger, his utter rejection of the way that people have lived, the way they've turned their back on him, the way they've only looked after their own interests and done anything that suits them in pursuit of that. It's his justice paying back the damage and pain and hurt that they have caused. It's his judgment on their disobedience. Judgment has come for them. And it is gonna come for us too. That's how we're like them, although we don't see it. Perhaps we won't see it in this life. Perhaps your life is gonna be comfortable and easygoing until it ends. But it certainly will come, this justice. It certainly will be done. There will be a day of reckoning for the people we like to label as super bad, for the global villains of this age, absolutely. But for you and me too. And judgment will be terrible. It's been utterly terrible for this people we're reading about. You can read some of the details in the book of Lamentations and it is heart-rending stuff that has happened to them. Their experiences, ruin and destruction, famine and sword, verse 19 here tells us. They've been walked over, tormented, verse 23. So let me ask you, do you ever feel the weight of wrong things you have done? Are you ever conscious of them hanging over you? You know, like a like a bill you know you're going to have to pay at the end of the year, right? You can pretend it's not there. You can push it aside. But actually, at the back of your mind, you know it is there. Like that essay, students, that you will have to write by the end of this year. You know it's there. You can push it aside, but you know it's there. I think 
Often, the wrong things we do hang over us in the same way. Now, perhaps they're public things. Perhaps it's a public disgrace, something everyone would know about. But more likely, these are private things that hang over you, known only to a few people, perhaps something known only to you yourself. Do you ever feel the weight of these things? We can claim we're pretty good, right? We can, in a conversation, feel like I'm a good person. But surely inside your own head, you know the truth that what you think and what you feel, what you have to conceal from the world, the things I must not show you about who I am. These things hang over us and judgment is coming for them. The first thing we learn from this passage The second thing we learn is more bad news. We do not have the resources within us to escape from this judgment. Take a look at verse 18. Amongst all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she brought up, there was none to take her by the hand. Again, it's poetic language. As a city have children, that's an odd idea. But the picture here is looking for a way out, looking for somebody to guide this people who have been driven out of their land, driven into captivity, looking for somebody to lead them. And yet there is, there's nobody among them. A whole people, and not even one of them can mastermind and escape. No, no child is gonna be born to them who will be able to do this. The solution to their problem, the escape from the place they find themselves in, it's not gonna come from inside. It's not something they can do for themselves. That's like that for us too, right? There are different ways we try and evade this judgment that is coming to us. We try and persuade ourselves, really there's no such thing as right or wrong in the first place, or at least nobody can really tell right from wrong. Nobody can really figure it out. But the truth is, in our hearts, we know some things are wrong, do we not? We tell ourselves, well, there there isn't any ultimate justice coming that we need to worry about, really. There will be no final calling to account. But the moment we think that, the idea of a world without justice, where people really do get away with every evil act, doesn't that repel us? Don't we wish that wasn't true? That would point out others who are far worse than us. We're not so bad, so we'll be okay. We, we try and balance the books. We say, well, okay, fine. I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good as well. Let's add these up. But you have to always worry whether you've done enough. There is no hope of escaping from this prison inside. For Israel, there was no hope. There was no way for them out of this mess they had got themselves into. There was no light at the end of the tunnel, there was nothing at all they could do. The same is true for us. We have all done wrong. Justice is coming for us like a train and there is nothing that we can do to fix it. And then comes that stunning moment that we started with. The Noise of the jets streaking overhead has faded. And then 
in the silence that follows, over the crackling, faint but unmistakable comes the announcement that war, war is at an end. Verse 22, see, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. You'll never drink again. God has done for them what they couldn't. He's put an end to this very physical, very painful judgment that has fallen on them. God has done for us, for you and me, what we couldn't. He's taken the judgment that was laying in front of us, the judgment that is as certain as death, as unrelenting as death, and he's put an end to it. This cup of wrath is finished with us. We'll never drink from it again. Back to that picture of being weighed down by the things that we do, the things that we have done. This lifts the weight from our shoulders. How? How can something as amazing as this happen? Well, he doesn't explain here, so you have to come back next week. Next week, we'll get some more detail. Today, what God's word says to us is we don't have to drink that cup of judgment. God has, God has taken it away. He's intervened on our behalf. It gives us a tiny hint here by calling God the one who defends his people. And the word defends there is a very specific word. A very, um, it speaks about a legal courtroom intervention. God mounts our legal defense, that says. This taking away, this removing from us of the oncoming judgment, it's not arbitrary. It's not sweeping it under the carpet. It's right. It's in keeping. It's, it's appropriate somehow. So come back next week. But that's not the end of the matter. The next section of the text, starting at chapter 52, has a second wake-up call for us. Not just that God has intervened, he's taken away this cup of judgment that was rightly in our hands. He's done more than that. He has set us free. That's it's verse two in chapter 52. Free from the chains on your neck. We're no longer slaves. That is, we are no longer forced into obedience. And it goes further. Look at, look at verse one. Clothe yourself with splendor. Oops, strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of garments of splendor. Perhaps you're a super dry kind of guy and that's your garment of splendor. Maybe a sharp suit is more what you're thinking of. But the original hearers of this message they would have immediately resonated with these words. And we shouldn't miss what it would have pointed them to. It would point them to the special clothes that the priests would have worn. Exodus 28.2 speaks about that. The second wake-up call, the first wake-up call, the cup is taken away. The second wake-up call, God has gone further than taking away judgment and bringing freedom. He's called them to wake up, and as they wake, he calls them to take on a new role. He calls them to become 
priests. Now, this was always the plan for Israel. Uh, Exodus 19.6, they were to be a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation, but obviously it's something they'd never lived up to, right? In fact, they'd gone so far the other way from being this holy nation, here they are in exile, cast out of their land. But out of the blue, it seems like God hasn't just restored them, he doesn't just bring them back to their land, he makes them what it is they were always meant to be. Uh, a, a kingdom of priests. Now, let me bring this back to us. It can all seem a bit abstract sometimes, can't it? What about us? The cup of wrath has been taken away from us. We're freed. We're freed from the chains of sin. We're no longer dominated by it, mastered by it, unable to go a different direction. But the parallel continues. The Bible tells us we too have been made priests by God. Uh, 1 Peter Two, verse five, we're to be a holy priesthood or Revelation 5.10, Jesus has made us priests. Priests. Okay, us. Take a moment to think about what this actually means. Is it time for a, uh, a bulk order of dog collars? Is that what's in view here? What is it that makes priests special? Is it really about what they wear? Maybe, maybe we should have every one of us up here in the pulpit, make it pretty crowded. Am I a priest? Well, no more than, no more than any of you. There's a lot more to say about this than we can possibly say today, but one of the key things, the key thing that this passage emphasizes is that priests are meant to be completely holy, uh, that is, set apart, clean, or uh, pure is perhaps a really helpful way of thinking about it. Uh, such a key thing for the priest to be holy, the high priest, the most important one, used to walk around with a golden sign on his head that said, holy to the Lord. Why was this holiness so important for priests? Because they entered God's presence, because they met with God. We can't meet with God without being holy. We could dwell more on this, but we're gonna move on. The scene changes once more in this passage we've been looking at. After the second wake-up call, in verse seven, we get this, uh, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. It's a very favorite verse. But what does it actually mean? It's not a comment on outstanding podiatry. A beautifully sparkly nail polish. It's not even that a guy walked over the mountains without wearing walking boots. It's the excitement that news arriving brings. If you look at this section again, starting at verse 7, the joyful thrust is so clear. The watchmen, these watchmen who have kept their eyes peeled through the night. Why do you watch the walls? Because you think an army's coming. You think an enemy's coming. These watchmen who are worried, spying for this enemy, instead, what have they seen? It's not the enemy that's coming. It's the Lord who is coming. He's returning to be in the middle of his people. He's not been defeated. He's not been lost. He's not left them behind and forgotten about them. He's been fighting for them, and now he's back won. He's victorious. He wins freedom 
for his people. The ruins, uh, the rubble of the city breaks into song as the news spreads. The Lord has comforted his people. The Lord has redeemed his people. The salvation of our God has come. These are enormous things. And it tells us that the ends of the earth is gonna see it. The arm of the Lord is revealed, not that God is rolling up his sleeves and showing off some toned biceps. This is Isaiah's term, this arm of the Lord. Isaiah's term for the one who is going to come, the the servant that you've been hearing about. If you've been with us over these last couple of months, the servant that you'll hear about if you're with us next week again. Emmanuel, God present with his people. But God coming to be with his people, God making his presence felt among his people, God revealing his arm, it has to bring us back to this idea of priesthood again. Priests, those set apart to be holy and pure, those fit to be in the presence of God. And that's where today's passage ends up, as a call for this newly restored, this newly freed people, a call for us to begin a new journey. See, that rejoicing city that we heard about, that we've just been thinking about, that's not where we are yet. It's our destination. It's, uh, it's up ahead of us on the road. But we haven't arrived yet. And the final section of today's text calls us to begin a journey, a, a holy journey. Verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure. Many of you here today will know your biblical history well, and if you do, this might resonate particularly with the return from exile that we read about in the book of Ezra, particularly verse 11 here. This uh, one's carrying the articles of the Lord's temple might remind us of how the Persian king Cyrus sends back the holy bits and pieces from God's temple. The ones that his predecessor nicked. I'm sure that's part of what's in view here, but I think Israel's physical return from their exile in Babylon back to their own land, I don't think that's the main thing this passage is speaking about. I have my reasons. You can ask me about them later. I think this continues our story the story of our rescue and redemption. So this cup of judgment has been taken away from us. We've been set free as a result. More than that, we've been made priests. We hear the excitement of a people whose God has returned victorious. And now we've got this call to set off on a journey. How does, how does that fit here? Well, the picture very much is an echo of the biblical exodus that great journey that God's people took from slavery in Egypt out towards the promised land, passing through judgment. Notice in verse 12, God goes before, the God of Israel will be your rear guide. God before and behind, just like he did in that first Exodus journey. It's definitely 
meant to remind us of that. And yet there are big differences here too. Last time they plundered the Egyptians as they went. They took loads of stuff with them. This time, don't touch anything unclean. Last time they went in haste and the, the word used is one that's only used a very few times. Every single time the word turns up, it's used about the Exodus. This time in verse 12, you will not leave in haste. So it's an Exodus, but it's a a very different one. It's a new one. So what? The rejoicing city we read about in verses 7 to 10, that's a, that's a flash forward. That's our, our ultimate destination. That, Christians, is where we are headed to this place of rejoicing when God finally comes home victorious. But we still have that journey to make. The definitive event has happened. Just like in that first exodus, The last and greatest plague, the definitive event, the passing through the sea, the definitive event has happened, but still, there is a journey for the people before they arrive at the promised land. Or just like the return from exile, the definitive event, the kingdom is overthrown, Babylon falls, and still there is this journey. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, waves of people heading back home. For us, the definitive event has happened. Jesus has accomplished it all at the cross. He says, and he gets it right, it is finished. It's done. But there's still a journey ahead to take hold of what has been won. The journey of this life, the journey from the moment that Jesus takes from us that cup of wrath, the moment we believe through to the day we finally arrive safe home with God. The final section here, verses 11 and 12, emphasizes two things about this journey. First, that we're called to be holy, to be pure as we journey, and second, that God is with us as we go. And the two go together, of course. God can only be with a holy people. He can only be among a holy people. We're people who have been made holy through what Jesus has done, yes. But we're also people who are being made holy through the ongoing work of God's Holy Spirit alive within us and changing us. Hebrews 10, 14, I think, makes this really clear. It says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy perfect forever, and yet are being made holy. That seems incompatible, doesn't it? But that reflects the the finished nature of Jesus' work on the cross, and yet the life of discipleship and transformation that is set out for us. What an epic story. In the middle of Isaiah chapter 51. Deliverance, transformation, Journey, presence, and homecoming. And this can be our story. So I have to ask you today whether this is your story. Or whether that cup of judgment is still 
in your hands? Have you ever had it taken from you? Do you know that you have had that cup of judgment taken from you? You see, Jesus will take it from you. No, it's more than that, actually. Jesus will take it for you. John 18, 11, he is willing to take the cup of judgment which you are due. He's willing to drink it for you. He's willing to take the penalty that you have earned for yourself, take the judgment that you're due, take all of it, drink it to the bottom so that there is nothing left for you, so that you will never drink from it again. If only you'll let him. If only you will acknowledge him. Uh, If only you will believe it. This call to wake up here is God's call to you today. Wake up. Recognize what has been done. Will you wake up today? If I'm speaking to you and you want to do something about this, you can. You can do business with God today. It's not complicated. There's no special formulas. No handshake you need. Just need to believe. Speak to God. Speak to a Christian. Speak to whoever brought you here today. Speak to the person who's next to you. Uh, Speak to me afterwards. Don't keep holding on to this cup. And if the cup has been taken from you, then this passage has lots to say to you as well. Are you living in the freedom that is yours? Cause you to wake up, be free of the chains. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer bound. You've been, you've been made a priest and you're, you're called to be holy as you walk out this journey of life with God. But is your life really like that? Imagine for a moment that God was to walk into this room in all his holiness and glory. Could your life possibly stand in his presence? Mine so often can. Now, even when the cup of judgment has been taken from us, we can still imagine ourselves to be captive. We can still live a life that doesn't match up to this purity we've been called to. We can feel like, I just can't change it. The second wake-up call in today's passage reminds us that we can change it, that it is time to put on those priestly garments of holiness to live the pure life of those who want to walk with God. Remember the truth here, God walks with us, his spirit lives within us. Ah, The power the new life that does make it really possible for you to break whatever sin is holding you captive. It is there. You ever feel like you're alone on this journey? Today's passage encourages you. You are not alone. God goes before you. God walks behind you. It's not always an easy journey but God is with you. More than that, the New Testament tells us God is within us. His Holy Spirit lives within us. He will never leave us.
final question for you this morning, a hard one for us sometimes. Are you rejoicing? Is this good news that actually makes you excited? Are we too conservative to be excited? If this isn't the equivalent of that longed-for announcement that the war is over, then perhaps we haven't really understood that we've been in the middle of a war. Picture it like this. Somebody rushes up to you and hands you a parachute. Okay. Thanks. I guess. You can just look confused until you realize you are falling out of the sky, at which point the parachute becomes very good news indeed. So is this taking away of the cup, is this freedom, is this presence of God with you on the journey, does this actually make joy well up within you? And not just the sort of silent, unexpressed, invisible joy that we so often like to have in preference to an overflowing and real joy, the sort of joy, oh my goodness, that makes us burst into song. What a thing. Sometimes we can lose sight of what's being done for us. Sometimes we can lose its impact. We can forget the freshness and the newness and the significance of it. Sometimes we can forget what did lie ahead for us. We can forget that we are in free fall. Let today's passage remind you. Let it remember for you again the incredible thing that is yours, Christian. We're going to pray, and, uh, and then we're going to sing. Well, Lord, it is very easy for us to not see the reality of our situation, to forget that by rights in our hand, there should be a cup of your wrath. That by rights, our life has earned for us judgment and justice. Now, when we forget these things, we forget how good the news is of your rescue. So please, Lord, would you help us today to remember where it is we stand, what it is that was rightfully ours. And I pray today, this might be a day that we would rejoice in it being taken away. Lord, as we read about how you call us to wake up, not just to the removal of your wrath, but also to your call to priesthood, to purity, to holiness, to a life that is fit to be lived with you. Please may we take that call seriously. Lord, by your spirit, might you convict us of something that needs to change. And I thank you that by your power it can change. May your spirit be alive and at work within us, making us perfect. Lord, thank you so much that we do not walk this journey alone. 
But because we walk with you in front, behind, within, we can look ahead to that rejoicing, joyful city and we can know that is our destination. The one day our journey will be done. And so, Lord, might we walk with joy. And we ask these things uh, not because we deserve them or because we have earned them. It's precisely not what we have earned. We ask them because Jesus has earned them and deserved them and freely gives them to us. So for your glory, Lord, please would you hear us. Amen.